Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. In the 2006 World Cup final, French captain Zinedine Zidane was attacking Italy's defense like it was the last match of his life. Because it was. It's Zinedine Zidane here. Oh, it crossed the line, it's a goal. But how lucky almost is that? How casual, how cheeky. Only one of the world's great, great players would attempt anything as audacious as that. This is a broadcast from that World Cup final the match that would forever alter Zidane's career. Zidane was one of the world's greatest players. He'd already won France a World Cup in 98, and as the current game wore on, he and his team were just one goal away from doing it again. It's late in the game, and it's tied. And Zidane had scored for France earlier on a really audacious penalty and had been the best player in this game as well. And so from a storyline perspective, it seemed like we were heading for Zinedine Zidane going out in a blaze of glory, winning a World Cup with France in his very last game as a player. That's journalist Grant Wall, who was covering the World Cup for Sports Illustrated. Grant watched as Zidane did everything he could to get to the winning goal. But regular time ended with the score tied at 1-1, to and the match went into extra time. The players were exhausted and anxious. Everyone was looking to Zidane to do something. And then, out of nowhere, during a break in play, the referee showed him a red card, expelling him from the game. What had he done? Nobody seemed to know. There's just confusion on the field. Nothing seemed to have happened, and then the referee's showing a red card to Zidane. And we're just like, what? What happened? Nobody knows what happened. What did Zidane do? Why did he get a red card? And this confusion lasts for several minutes. In the meantime, Zidane is walking off with his head down, walking past the World Cup trophy. The commentators on ABC were just as confused. The main camera hadn't been on Zidane because he hadn't been near the ball. So why had the referee sent him off? A man is down for Italy as well. This happened away from the ball, so right now we're trying to get a look at who may be down. This was 2006, before every moment of every game was readily accessible via the internet. The crowd, the press, and the fans watching at home waited until the broadcast showed a different camera angle, one that had been following the French captain. And what it showed was shocking. On the video... 
Italy's Marco Materazzi exchanges words with Zidane. Then Zidane stops in his tracks, takes a step towards Materazzi, lowers his head, and... Marco Materazzi gets crushed by Zidane. And again, away from... They show a replay of Zidane headbutting Marco Materazzi, the Italian defender, in the chest with such force that Materazzi, who is a sturdy guy, went right on his back. Like, this was no embellishment or dive. Don just hammered him with his head. I've never felt a sense of shock at watching something like that in a game because it wasn't something that you could even comprehend Zidane, of all people, doing. Zidane walked off the pitch. Without their star player, France went on to lose the penalty shootout. As Italy celebrated its victory, France was flooded with analysis, speculation, and debate about what had just happened. Like, what do you make of that? What, what was he thinking, you know? The first wave was, like, the first, the cover of L'Equipe, which is the French sporting magazine. The first wave of interpretation was, like, some people would refer to it as, like, very American, which was, like, it was very moralizing, right? It was sort of like, it was like, this is very bad. You know, what are the children going to, what example has he set for the children? That's Laurent Dubois, a professor at the University of Virginia and author of several books, including Soccer Empire, The World Cup, and The Future of France. A decade after Zidane knocked him over, Materazzi admitted he'd made a comment about Zidane's sister. In the days after the match, however, both players refused to explain the incident. It was anyone's guess, which led to a lot of speculation, that the comment may have been about Zidane's Algerian heritage. Amidst all the debate over whether Zidane's headbutt was justified, one piece of the story kept coming up. Because he's Algerian, Immediately, this became also racialized in certain ways. And it was like, you know, was it a racist insult? As Zidane and the French team, colloquially known as Le Bleu, progressed in the World Cup, a far-right politician named Jean-Marie Le Pen made headlines by criticizing them. The players, he said, did not truly represent the French public and accused non-white French players of not singing when the national anthem was played before matches. Le Pen wasn't the only one who felt that people like Zidane, whose parents had been born in Algeria under French colonial rule, weren't actually French. Zidane's headbutt was just one sign that the nation of France, so often portrayed as democratic and egalitarian, actually held a dark legacy of the harm it had inflicted in the past and had never quite done the work to heal. With the world's cameras on it, Le Bleu had become the latest spotlight on the question of what it really means to be part of a nation. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. Today, we'll be looking at what the French national team, Le Bleu, means to the nation it represents. In the 18th and 19th centuries, French colonized large portions of Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. 
In an attempt to maintain their empire, the French government killed and imprisoned thousands of people from these colonies. Ultimately, French rule came to an end in many of these colonies, but people still moved freely back and forth from France to formerly colonized nations. People from those colonies now make up a significant portion of France's population. Just as they have played an important role in France's national culture, they have been a part of France's national team. Sometimes that team can be the embodiment of a beautiful and diverse nation. And sometimes, when the team starts to come apart, it can feel like the country is falling apart with it. A national team is something unique. There's a mix of seasoned veterans and young players hoping to become household names. They have different backgrounds, different styles, different religious beliefs, and different ideas about what exactly they're there to represent. Somehow, they're expected to pull it all together on the world's biggest stage as one people. When you see the 11 players of a national team during the national anthems before a game, that is a human representation of this is the best of what this country has to offer in this particular endeavor which happens to be soccer, which is the most popular sport in the world, and people care about it deeply. Grant Wall was just 24 when Sports Illustrated sent him to France to cover his first World Cup, the 1998 tournament in France. It was a different world back then. In those days, photographers, including action photographers at games, were not shooting digital yet. I can remember that starting at the 2002 World Cup. So they would literally fly the negatives on the Concorde back to New York, along with anything from Time magazine that was going on in Europe that they were shooting because we were all sister magazines. And they would spend crazy amounts of money to fly negatives on the Concorde back to New York. But one thing was exactly the same. When national teams from around the world met to crown a champion... The pressure was on. At the World Cup, everyone's eyeballs are focused on one thing, the game that happens to be taking place. And you do feel like everyone in the world is watching this game that you're at. In Grant's eyes, the 1998 French men's national soccer team was the greatest team France had ever fielded or has since. I think for any team to be considered among the greatest... You've got to have a transcendent superstar. And France had that with Zinedine Zidane. He was a generational talent. And the things that he did on the ball, with the ball, even away from the ball, and the vision that he had and the ability to do a pirouette in an instant and erase a defender on the ball, it was incredible. Zidane was already a national icon. His supporting cast back in 98 was young and relatively untested. But many of them now rank among the biggest French stars of all time. Thierry Henry, who scored a goal in the tournament. Still a teenager. David Trezeguet. Still very young. And Lillian Turam, who had scored two goals in the semifinal. And then there was midfielder Didier Deschamps who captained the 98 team. Deschamps played for Le Bleu for 11 years and never scored in a major tournament, 
but he was tenacious. He excelled at pouncing on attackers and stripping the ball away from them, and he had vision. Deschamps could see an attacking move before it unfolded and get the ball to the players who had put the ball in the back of the net. There's a a famous old saying in soccer that in addition to piano players, you need piano carriers. And that two-word phrase, piano carrier, was applied directly to Didier Deschamps during his career. And it was often done by people who didn't have a lot of respect for him. And I never understood that because you need a piano carrier or two or three on your team. But Deschamps was a great compliment to Zidane because everyone understood their role. And Zidane was the creative star, get the ball to Zizou. But Deschamps was the guy who would win the ball to get it to Zizou. Zidane, officially known as Zizou, was the hero of the 98 World Cup. Brazil had been expected to mop the floor with France in the final, but the French had confidence, not to mention home field advantage. Midway through the first half, Zidane struck. Zidane scored again at the start of the second half, and as the game ended, his teammate Emmanuel Petit added a third for good measure. The French men's team were suddenly world champions. Crowds marched down the Champs-Élysées, waving the French tricolor and chanting Zidane's name. The spectacle was unlike anything the city had witnessed since the end of the Second World War. And Grant was in the middle of it, literally. So I had to get back to my dingy apartment near the Bastille, which was a long ways away from the Stade de France, got in a media bus that wasn't moving anywhere because there were three million people in the street celebrating. The win meant a lot. Any World Cup win would, of course, but it was particularly significant for this group of players in this country to win this World Cup. Interestingly, that 1998 was also 150th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in France in 1848. And there was a particularly strong group of Caribbean players on the 1998 team that included Lilian Thuram, Lama also in goal, and a few others who actually were very involved and active in that kind of question of the commemoration of slavery. France's team had been diverse right from its start, with some of its early stars hailing from as far away as Poland and, yes, Algeria. By the 90s, Algeria and other African former colonies had cast off French rule. But hundreds of thousands of Algerians were living in France with deep connections to both countries. Other former colonies like the islands of Martinique and Guadalupe had become overseas departments, their people becoming full French citizens. The team really felt like a global world team. You know, it it felt like a team where you had people whose, whose family stories connected them to Africa, to the Caribbean, to North Africa, to actually New Caledonia, to the, Poly- the sort of Polynesia, Oceania world. So you had a really interesting group. You had descendants of Armenian immigrants. You had, you know, someone who identified very strongly as Basque, kind of with, within France. And so there was a way in which the team was, you know, under the French flag, but I think it felt to a lot of people like this is a world team. And seeing all of these different groups together, playing together, was was powerful. 
This showcase of diversity was also powerful for French politicians on the far right. Jean-Marie Le Pen, in particular, had built a career out of laying the blame for just about all problems in French society at the feet of people from the former colonies and their children. Zidane's father was kind of brought to France as a laborer when he was a young man, and he, he kind of, there were lots of Algerian men who were brought in from the French colonies to work in France. They never were not French in the sense that they came from a colony, which was Algeria. The French colonized Algeria for 132 years, from 1830 to 1962. A French colonel was quoted as saying that their mission was to, quote, destroy everything that will not crawl beneath our feet like dogs. That brutality defined the colonial period, which lasted until Algerian nationalists rose up in the 1950s. During Algeria's war for independence, French forces tortured prisoners, executed civilians, dropped people to their death out of helicopters, and buried others alive. In 1962, France finally granted Algeria the right to self-determination, and Algerians voted to establish an independent nation. But people continued to move between France and its former colonies. So you had had these waves of, of migration that had led to a lot of North Africans and West Africans being in, in France. And then you also had the movement from the French Caribbean of people who were French citizens. So they weren't formal migrants, but they were moving from the Caribbean in, 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 in somewhat large numbers to France. These former subjects of the French Empire were now French citizens. But they were treated as anything but. And expected to prove themselves on the terms of their former oppressors. That meant speaking French in public and adjusting to a culture that limited religious expression, particularly when that religion was Islam. So when Jean-Marie Le Pen said they put an Algerian in the team to please the Arabs, he was drawing a clear line between French Algerians and the people he considered to truly be French. When he said that they put blacks in the team to satisfy the Antillas, what he meant was that players like Lillian Taram, born on the island of Guadalupe and raised in a Paris suburb, should not be allowed to represent France on the international stage. Le Pen ran for president five times and never succeeded, but he came surprisingly close in 1998. After the World Cup, however, people were calling for Zidane to run for president. After the final, people chanted Zidane's name in the streets of Paris. And both of them had grown up in French projects, right, in kind of poor, poorer urban neighborhoods. And they kind of also spoke, kind of represented that history as well. So Black Blanc Bear is a term that really grew in popularity around the time of the 1998 World Cup success. That's Jonathan Johnson, a journalist who covers all things French football. And it's a play on the, the French flag's colors, which, you know, are blue, white, and red. So in French, bleu, blanc, rouge. And it's it basically almost kind of like a social commentary about, you know, the, the mix of, of different players from different ethnic backgrounds within the, the squad that was successful in 1998. And it's basically championing the, the melting pot that the French society, you know, was at that time and many feel still is. The spirit he described was echoed by Thierry Henry, whose parents hailed from the French Antilles when he spoke with the documentary crew about the 98 run. In 98, 
for me, when I was playing for France and playing with that team, that was France. That is France. However you want to look at it sideways, however, you know, for me, if someone came to, to battle for the country, that give, gives him all the right to claim that he, that he, that he's French, right? That's, that, that's, that's what I believe in. And for a bit, it seemed like the entire nation agreed. Nothing brings a nation together like the success of a national team. It didn't last long, you know, that all that togetherness and that whole happiness, but um, it did for a couple of more, for two, three more, for everybody were proud to be French and, and happy to be French. Even after something as momentous as winning the World Cup, there's always another game around the corner. And keeping a team in good form is already an enormous challenge. So keeping the spirit of an entire nation in good form was going to take a miracle. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard, so is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. In 2001, the French national team hosted the Algerian national team for a friendly match, basically a glorified scrimmage. Officially, the match would be meaningless, but any meeting between France and Algeria would be fraught with meaning. So it wasn't a shock when politics and nationalism bled onto the field. It started with about 20 minutes left in the match when a French-Algerian woman ran onto the field waving an Algerian flag. Others followed as security scrambled to restore order. They're hustling the players off the pitch. They're worried about their safety, etc. And the last player to come off and they're having to drag him off is Lilian Turam. Turam, the Guadalupe-born defender and member of the 98 World Cup team, had always been outspoken about racism. In fact, after his career was over, he was appointed to France's High Council for Integration. It was clear that he shared the frustrations of the people who had disrupted the game and was trying to look out for them. Because he's grabbing these kids on the pitch and like giving them lectures about like why their tactics are wrong, essentially. Taram had lived through the intense scrutiny of the French media and the far right. To his mind, these protesters were playing into their hands. 
Like he's sort of saying like, you know what this, I mean, I understand that you're pissed off about racism, but this is just, they're just going to use this against you. A few weeks later, Jean-Marie Le Pen actually announced that he was running for president, like outside the stadium and sort of said, you know, like our, our country's kind of been desecrated. All these migrants are, you know, like see what they did here, right? They're French. But then when they, when Algeria plays France, they root for Algeria and they're not really French, right? It was in this election, in this tense atmosphere, that Le Pen came the closest he ever had to winning the presidency, placing second. He had a particular fascination with the racial makeup of the French national soccer team and returned to criticizing them in 2006 when he was yet again running for president. It was also the year of Zidane's headbutt and his exit from the national team. His final inglorious moment didn't diminish Zidane's legacy, even if it did draw criticism. But as Jonathan Johnson noticed, Zidane remained an important figure, someone to whom every would-be French star would be compared. There'd be all this furore surrounding a bunch of different players as the next Zinedine Zidane, guys who really crumbled under the weight of expectation because... I mean, it was almost like there was a feeling that if they didn't have guys like Zidane, that there was no real sense of hope that they could go and win something. So you had all these pl- these new players compared to these legends of the game, you know, and it was always going to be very difficult for them to live up to those expectations. And I think that bred a lot of mutual resentment between the players and the fans. On top of that... Under team manager Raymond Domenech, this new French team had failed to rebound from the 2006 World Cup, failing to deliver again and again over the next four years. Relations with Domenech were already strained, even with some of the, 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 the elder members of the squad that already had Domenech's tenure kind of hanging by a thread. So tensions between players and Dominic came to a head at the 2010 World Cup, which began with an inauspicious draw against Uruguay. There were all sorts of awful things being said inside the team that got into the media. The French media is pretty dogged in pursuing this stuff. And so once that starts, the ball gets rolling and it can get pretty ugly. And it got ugly with France in 2010. France's next match was against Mexico. The game was scoreless at halftime, but the mood on the French team was grim. In the locker room, French forward Nicolas Anelka, a black player with parents from Martinique, raised his voice and swore at Dominic, his manager. Dominic kicked him out of the match, which France lost 2-0. This level of animosity between a player and a coach in the middle of a World Cup match was unprecedented. After Anelka refused to apologize, the French Football Federation kicked him off the team, putting him on a plane back to France. This, too, was unprecedented. For his teammates, who already had their grievances with Dominic, this was the final straw. A bunch of the players refused to practice one day, led by actually Patrice Evra of West African background. It's just like, you know, they're kind of saying, like, we're really not happy with the way that you're treating these players. Like, you know... Anelka could yell in the, in the locker room. People yell in locker rooms. It's not like an international incident, usually, right? But with the French media filming the whole thing, it became an international incident. Live on television, the team handed Dominic a letter and made him read it to the media that gathered on the training ground. You could tell from their statement that they blamed Dominic and the Federation for the escalating situation. 
In the letter, he was basically saying that the team opposes the French Football Federation's decision to kick Anelka off the team. The act of reading the letter to the cameras was clearly humiliating for Dominic. And the footage of him doing so was an international humiliation for France. As the cameras continued to roll, one of his assistants tore the World Cup logo from his own training uniform and stormed away. Le Bleu eventually resumed training for their final match. What should have been an easy win against South Africa, they lost 2-1. to one. Dominic, at the end of his rope, drew another round of criticism from the French and the international media by refusing to shake his South African counterpart's hand after the match. The team that had come so close to winning a second World Cup just four years earlier flew home in disgrace. The French Football Federation fired Dominic for misconduct and suspended a number of his players. Thierry Henry was called to meet with the president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, to explain the debacle, and the media was brutal. Every country in a World Cup, every team has its own media that follows it. And the cultures are different in different countries. With France, there has been over the years a media that I would say is is very dogged, uh, very willing to be critical and to, and to take a controversy and make it a really big deal. Some in the French media brought the conversation back around to old racist tropes. It reminded Laurent of a quote from Karim Benzema, a striker for Le Bleu whose parents were from Algeria. It's Karim Benzema who has, has a way of saying, of capturing things very well, but he's famously said, you know, when we win, we're French, when we lose, we're Arab. With Dominic and many of his players out of the team for good, it was back to the drawing board for Le Bleu. But France had been there before. In the making of Le Bleu, I write about the sports crisis that was kicked off by the Rome 1960 Summer Olympics, an Olympiad in which France thought it was going to do quite well, but wound up only placing 25th in the medal table for a lack of gold medals. That's Lindsay Krasnoff who studies French sports and wrote a book about the French national team, The Making of Le Bleu. This kicked off a government study and intervention in sports to try to figure out not only what went wrong, but to try to propose solutions for how to fix it. The solution the French government landed on was to get proactive. No more waiting and hoping for talented athletes to emerge. France had to develop them. You could not have winning national teams without having good youths who will age into the system. And so in recognition of this, in the early 1970s, both the French government as well as the French Football Federation put into place a youth development program and structure. France's academy system is now the envy of the world. What the academies have evolved into today are the equivalent of kind of sports boarding schools where Players who are recruited into them live predominantly, train, they compete, but they also have to follow their academic studies. And the Federation very much tracks which youth academies are having success at the academic level, which academies are having success 
at the professional football level in terms of having their players sign professional contracts and very much recognizing that for the number of players who are in the academy training system, very few of them will go on to have full-on professional careers. On top of that, a number of players who grew up in France and attended the academies were eligible to play for other nations. Some have dual nationalities. And even if they don't, many are eligible to play for countries like Algeria or Morocco if their parents were born there. In 2011, a year after the French team's World Cup meltdown in South Africa, there was another soccer scandal. And this time, it's centered around these young players. It happened because of a leaked recording. Laurent Blanc, the team manager, brought in to fix the mess left by Dominic, was recorded suggesting a quota system during a meeting with the French Football Federation. The surface argument is we have all these players who we train through our you know, academy system. And then they get to be teenagers and then they go play for like Morocco or Tunisia or Algeria, right? Blanc was suggesting limiting spots for Black and Arab players in the youth system based on the misconception that these players would take the skills they had learned and play for another country. The system was never implemented, but the mere suggestion set off a firestorm. So this idea that there's this kind of disloyal group that's sort of taking French resources and, I mean, again, a, a kind of allegory for the way that the far right talks about immigrants taking, you know, social resources or, you know, healthcare and that kind of stuff. Agents France Press even sent in a film crew to A.S. Bondi, a youth club in the suburbs of Paris, to interview young players of Arab and African descent about the incident. This is racism because on the French team, all you have is blacks and Arabs. If you took away the blacks and Arabs, the team would be finished. The best players have always been blacks or Arabs, except Platini, Cantona and those other guys. The third kid you heard was Kylian Mbappe, who would have been 12 or 13 at the time. Mbappe's father was from Cameroon, and his mother was from Nigeria. Like so many before him, Mbappe grew up in a working-class suburb, playing football on dusty fields with kids of all races and ethnicities. Funded by government subsidies, A.S. Bondi provided them the coaching and environment they needed to become elite players. They all considered themselves French, and they wanted to play for Le Bleu. And just a few years after that interview, Mbappe would do just that, helping them reach heights not seen since the days of Zidane. After a decade of failures and scandal, France desperately needed a steady hand to guide the national team. So the Federation turned to Didier Deschamps, the piano carrier whose support of Zidane and other stars had been crucial to winning a World Cup. In the years since, he had built an impressive coaching resume. Within a few years of his appointment as their manager, Le Bleu were a force to be reckoned with. Deschamps is not an attention seeker. And we have several coaches that we know, especially in the soccer world, especially at club level, not national team level, who are attention seekers, self-promoters, and giant personalities, often the biggest personalities inside their team. And Didier Deschamps is not the biggest figure inside the French team. And I think he likes it that way. And I think it's part of the reason why he's had success. France didn't win the World Cup in 2014, but they put on an impressive display in Brazil. In the round of 16, 
locked in a scoreless draw with Nigeria, another young product of France's soccer academies, scored a goal for the history books. Paul Pogba, born in an eastern suburb of Paris, to Guinean parents, was a rising star in 2014. Pogba is an electric player, equally capable of launching an attack with a perceptive pass or finishing it with an inch-perfect strike. Throughout his career, he's had disagreements with some of his managers, but not Deschamps. One of the really, I think, fun storylines has been the emergence of Paul Pogba, not a, not only as a leader on the field, but also the team leader in the locker room and off the field, and how he's really kind of risen to the occasion in so many different ways through that as kind of part of the heart and soul of the national team currently. Many people will tell you that Pogba plays best when he's wearing the blue shirt of the French national team. There was a piece in Le Keep recently about his close relationship with Didier Deschamps and, you know, how that's evolved and, you know, helped to factor into this. And so, you know, when he first started playing with the team more than 10 years ago, that was not necessarily a given. Two years later, on French soil, Deschamps coached his team to a second-place finish in the Euro Cup. And the French team that arrived in Russia for the 2018 World Cup was finally ready to reclaim the mantle of 1998. France waltzed through the group stage and faced Argentina in the first game of the knockout round. Now it was Kylian Mbappe's time to shine. Mbappe was just 19, but he was wearing the number 10 jersey, traditionally given to the player entrusted to orchestrate the team's attacks. Opposing Mbappe, was the legendary Lionel Messi, who was also wearing number 10. Messi's goal scoring is the stuff of legends. But in this game, it was Mbappe streaking down the left side of the field and delivering a goal that resonated around the world. Watch out, world! There's a new number 10! Kylian Mbappe's star is shining now! Mbappe was the breakout player of the tournament. Pogba was right there with him scoring a crucial goal in the final against Croatia. N'Golo Conte, a defensive midfielder, born in Paris to parents from Mali, dominated opposing attackers throughout the tournament. The 2018 France team had players who play better with their national team than they do with their club teams. And that says something about the national team, about the coaching staff, about the players themselves, where you get the sense that they feel like the national team is bigger than any individual. After Pogba put France up 3-1 to one in the final, Mbappe added one more for emphasis. Here's Mbappe! Oh my word! The first teenage World Cup final goal since Pelé himself! Mbappe's goal was historic. The first a teen had scored since Pelé. It was a dominant performance and once again, a victory to be celebrated by the whole of France. The 2018 team is very much like a team of African, of players of African descent. You know, Pogba, Kante, Mbappe, like these are the players that you remember from these tournaments. And they're very much sort of, in some ways, interestingly comfortable in their multi, you know, their kind of multi-ethnic nature. Don't apologize for it. A number of them are Muslim and open about that. Once again, the French national team had proven that diversity was a great strength for France. 
not a weakness. France exploded in celebration, and when Deschamps sat down to speak to the notoriously difficult French media, his players burst in with champagne, singing his name. In 1998, adoring fans had marched through the streets of Paris, chanting the name of Zinedine Zidane. Now, 20 years later, it was the man who supported him, Didier Deschamps, whose name was ringing out across France. Deschamps had done it again, and France had done it again. But of course, there's always the next World Cup. This year, the World Cup kicks off on November 20th, with Le Bleu set to play their first match in the 22nd against Australia. Didier Deschamps knows what it takes to bring the squad together, and anyone who's watched them knows how easily it can fall apart. What kind of World Cup will it be for the defending champions, and what will this team mean to France? All eyes will be on Le Bleu. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Carl Nellis, Nikki Stein, and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Stephen Wood. Additional story editing from James Boo. Our associate producer is Tori Smith. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Levino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. This is the last episode of season two. We want to thank you so much for listening to the show. It's been an exciting adventure on behalf of myself and the team who works on the show to bring you some of the wildest, most fascinating stories in sports. Stay subscribed to Torched for future updates, and we'll see you next time. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 